Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess. Or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss joins us today to talk about his latest book, Hooked, which explores the science behind why so many of us find processed foods addictive and how this has changed our relationship with food as consumers. It's just kind of this feeling of having lost the beauty and ritual of like home-cooked meals with family and friends, having fallen so hard for these companies who are telling us what we should value in food rather than letting us establish for ourselves what we value in food. Also coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt teaches us different ways to use alcohol in the kitchen, that is, besides drinking. And we put a spin on an old-school bundt cake, but first, it's my interview with Uzza Soko. Soko recently launched Feast Afrique, the first online database of West African cookbooks. It now contains nearly 250 books. Uzza's welcome to Milk Street. Thank you, Chris. Feast Afrique, which I love, your digital library. Uh, when did you start it? What were you trying to do? Just describe it if you could. So Feast of Freak currently has about 240 books. 
and the books explore West African culinary and food heritage from around 1828 till modern times. And the, the idea was there's so many e-books and digital resources that would be nice to have in one place that reference little-known West African culinary history and that could be useful to deepen people's knowledge. I, I want there to be scholarship around West African food and culinary traditions. So I actually looked up a couple of these books. One of them was Practical West African Cookery, published in 1910. And uh, I mean, it, it was a cookbook for, as they say, to enable the white man to obtain well-cooked and varied food. I mean, they, they weren't making any bones about it. Uh, but s some of the menus in there were cold fish with mayonnaise, tornadoes of beef or mutton, roast duck with applesauce. <laughs> I guess they weren't really that interested in the local cuisine. I, I don't think they were. But, but there are some glimmers of Nigerian cuisine documented, which is what drew me to the book as a resource of sorts. Right. So there's a recipe for jollof rice. Right. Um, there's also a summary of native, traditional, northern Nigerian ingredients that's listed in, in the glossary or, or one of the starting pages. But, you know, they say that they wrote the book for you know, fellow British or countrymen of theirs right. using a lot of French techniques and inspiration. Some of the books are written by black people with West African heritage, but not all of them are. And it's interesting to bring all these pieces together to understand the times and, and to understand what those times meant and what, you know, what it took to document and to preserve these aspects of culinary heritage, food culture, but there's definitely a sense of taking back and understanding and kind of rebuilding knowledge piece by piece. There's still many pieces not quite reconciled. Well, you spent many years in your career as an exploration geologist. You wrote, uh, Geologic Theories Guide My Work. The theory of superposition, things are laid down and you can trace them. The present is the key to the past. Could you just take us on that journey a little bit? So when you go back and look at the history of Nigeria, the culture, the food, what's being superimposed? Is it different cultures, different influences? You know, when I think about food, I it, it's always as more than eating. You know, there's so many influences. And the journey to unearth, to kind of retrace the steps. You come across geographical changes, uh, influences, colonial in this case. But th there's so many aspects of Nigerian cuisine that are a mix of things. So take jollof rice, for instance. You have the influence of Senegal, but in terms of seasoning, you have a more colonial seasoning because you have curry powder, which is a British construct that isn't part of the original food canon of Nigeria. So there are just so many influences, right? So with a combination of reading those books, knowing what I know of history, 
speaking to people, you're able to establish a timeline of sorts. By looking at elements of the past, you can see how they go together to create things we see on the table today. And it's, it's just interesting to see how culinary practices have been sustained through time. So there are differences, but there are also things that have stayed the same. Let's do some digging here. So give me some examples of bedrock Nigerian cooking, like things that really go to the heart and soul of what you define as, as Nigerian food. I'd say that there are a few national Nigerian dishes and many regional Nigerian dishes. So a, a national dish might be jollof rice, which is not only national, but is subcontinental, you know, everywhere across sub-Saharan West Africa. Um, things like akara, a fritter made from black-eyed beans, mm-hmm. similar to a falafel. Um, akara is one of those dishes that is at the heart of Nigerian cuisine, at least over the last 300, 400 years. And I say that with confidence because their records that are traced back to the transatlantic slave trade and to Nigeria. And then you have the Nigerian soups made from Mm -hmm. proteins with greens and thickness that are typically nuts, seeds, gels. So there's a classic defining Nigerian foods, I'd say. So... We've talked about the old Nigerian kitchen, I guess, in some ways, and now the new Nigerian kitchen. What is that? What is what is that? What does that mean? The new Nigerian kitchen, it's an approach that wants to celebrate all aspects of Nigerian cuisine. It's an approach to treating Nigerian ingredients as ingredients, not only confining them to their traditional uses, So like the approach to using yaji beyond suya spice. It's it's a call to embracing the diversity of Nigerian ingredients, but also forging new paths and new uses. You know, a lot of times when people hear new, they think it's only focused on the contemporary. But for me, it's the entirety. It's how about we bring this new appreciation, this new respect for Nigerian cuisine beyond, you know, beyond the traditional, but not, you know, negating that or dismissing that. Azaz, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. You know, I just learned so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. That was Azaz Soko. Her online database of West African cookbooks is called Feast Afrique. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moult and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She is also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, you know, I recently interviewed Nigel Lawson. Her new book is Cookie Repeat. She did a gratin, a fennel gratin with cream. And I realized that I hadn't used cream in a savory application, you know, in dessert, but in a savory application in years. And I started wondering why not? Back in the 70s, I did a lot of dishes like that where cream was used not just in desserts, 
but it was an ingredient, of course, in a lot of savory dishes. And I, I think I want to start doing that again. And I know that your background, you probably did a lot of that. What's happened to cream and savory foods? It seems like they've gotten a divorce, right? I don't know, except when it comes to potatoes. I know you've done pot- yeah. you know, potato gratins, so yeah. have I. But you're right. I mean, I have French training, and I used to use cream a lot more. I think it's because we all got healthier for a while, also because Julia's not in our ears saying more cream, more butter, more cream, more butter. So I think we all find ourselves reaching for the olive oil a lot more than the butter and for the chicken broth rather than the cream. But I'm going to make a case. I think cream can be added like half a cup or a quarter cup, which is, it isn't much fat per person, right? It really isn't. And a little bit of cream can transform a sauce or transform a casserole or a gratin, just a little bit. But it's like having cream in your coffee instead of milk. It's a totally different experience. I'm all for it. I agree. And with the added benefit that cream, when you reduce it, thickens naturally. So it means that you don't have to add a thickener, you know, like cornstarch or flour. So yeah, bring back cream. Let's do it. Got cream? That's the poster. (laughs) Julia's smiling up in heaven. Okay, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hello, this is Erin. I'm calling from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Ah, How can we help you? I've lived here about four years and I'm finally trying to figure out how to make one of my favorite raised waffles, and I can't figure out how to do it with what my options are for yeast in the Netherlands. (laughs) So the recipe calls for what? Dry yeast, and it's very Mm -hmm. specific. It says not instant or rapid rise yeast. Right. All I can find here is instant yeast or fresh yeast. Forget what the instruction said. Use instant yeast. You can just use the same amount of yeast. You don't have to change the amount. Add the instant or rapid rise yeast directly to the dry ingredients. You don't have to soak it or sprinkle it on warm water first. And don't change the liquid amounts. That is, the water you would have used to hydrate the yeast would just go into the formula. Don't do anything different except instead of sprinkling the yeast on water, just put it in with a flour. Okay. And you should be good to go. This recipe says to leave the batter overnight out on the counter. You add milk, butter, salt, sugar, flour, in addition to the yeast, and then you leave that whole thing to stand overnight at room temperature. That's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) Have you made this recipe before using the yeast to call for active dry in the recipe? Yes. I made it like regularly when I lived in the U.S. and I followed it, the instructions to the letter. Well, so Sarah and I think it's weird, but what do we know? (laughs) Usually you leave it out overnight if it's a starter. Your question is what to do with rapid rise or instant yeast. And the answer is just add the same amount to the flour and then all the liquid goes in when it normally goes into the recipe. Thank you. Thank you so much. I have a plan. Well, Aaron, thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Yes. Hi, my name is Ari, and I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh, how nice. How can we help you today? I have a question about chocolate, and that is about the flavor of chocolate. My friend suggested I try the Trader Joe's dark chocolate bar, like, oh, a couple of years ago, and I tried it, and I wasn't so fond of it at the time. And then years later, I had a recipe that needed a lot of chocolate. So I thought, oh, I'll try it again. 
and I uh, melted the chocolate for the recipe and cooked with it, and the dish was great. And then the next day, I tasted the melted chocolate that was left over, and it had cooled, and it was really good. And then I tasted it next to the pieces from the original mm. chocolate bar, and again, it was not as good, just like I remembered. Mm. So I bought a couple more bars and tried the process again, and again, the recalled chocolate tasted better. So I was wondering if mm. you had any thoughts on why that might be and why the chocolate would taste better after recooling. You want a job at Milk Street? I mean, that's pretty good. I have an idea. When commercial chocolate manufacturers make chocolate, what they're trying to do is to get the right crystalline structure, right? in the right you know, structure of the atoms, like Legos, right in the chocolate. The reason they do that is because they want the chocolate not to melt at body temperature, 98.6. They want it to hold and be solid. Once the chocolate melts, it loses that structure and it no longer has that property, which they think is important. It may be that the structure that they want so the chocolate bar doesn't melt too easily is not as conducive to the best mouthfeel, the best taste. So the tempering thing is you melt the chocolate to a certain temperature and then you cool it down and then you take it back up. You know, it's a process that great chocolatiers know how to do, the thing that Chris was talking about. And it makes the chocolate, you know, it snaps, has a really nice texture. Chris, I agree with you. I'm thinking that once you've melted it, maybe the flavor is more accessible. I applaud your testing chops, so I'm going right. to go... Uh, well, hey, listen, you I'll live in it. Cambridge. Go find Chris knocking on his door and tell him to give you a job. <laughs> Do you graduate MIT or something? You sound like you have that <laughs> No, but I will say I also tried cooking it slow over a double boiler and then microwaving it quickly to see if the speed of cooking affected huh? it, and it did not. In other words, if it was melted, it was better than if it was solid. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go check on that with you know a food science friend of mine, but I think that's right. Yeah. All right, take care. Thank you. All right, thank you so much. Yeah. I love the show. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need culinary inspiration, Sarah and I are here to help. Give us a ring anytime at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Karen. And where are you calling from? I'm calling from in Metro Detroit, just outside the Motor City. How can we help you? I've been looking at cookbooks from the 1940s and 1950s, and I'm trying to figure out what is the difference between the person who is trained as a home cook and someone who's a professional chef. Never seems like I'll ever be able to reach that kind of professional level and wonder if you had any thoughts or tips. I think the big difference is a chef does the same thing over and over again. So you get really good at doing very specific things revolving around a specific menu. The home cook, on the other hand, is doing lots of different things, especially these days you might make, you know, Singapore noodles one night and then you might make something from Peru and you might make a a tinga from Mexico City. A few quick tips, though. Having the right knife and a sharp knife is critical because food prep is 90% of cooking. The actual cooking is easy. It's the prep that's actually hard. Find a knife you really like and make sure you have a sharpener. Two, salt is critical, and restaurant chefs use lots of it. Home cooks don't, and that makes the difference between great food and good food or bad food. Balancing fat with acid is critical. That's why there's a lot of vinegar or lemon juice or other things. And finally, chefs know how to adjust a dish before serving. And I find home cooks don't do that very well. 
So before you serve a soup or a stew or a saute, taste it, taste it again, adjust salt, adjust acid, sweetness, whatever. You can put fresh herbs in at the end, the same herbs you used at the beginning. You could add some grated ginger. You could add a little bit of garlic. Balancing out the flavors right before serving is the most helpful thing. That's what a chef does. But since I'm co-hosting the show with a chef, Sarah, you might actually have some more relevant take on this. Well, I agree with a lot of what you said, but I'm going to start by saying, Karen, do you know who was the most famous home cook ever? Julia Child. That's very true. The way she became good was by repetition. Just cook. There's no better way to learn. Repeat recipes, take notes. Chris is absolutely right about the knife. If you're going to take one class, take a knife class. I agree with Chris about the salt. You need to season as you go. And if you season as you go, you'll use less salt. And finally, I agree with him also, when you're done, it's very important to taste. And there's four things I reach for to balance out something. Salt, acid, heat, or sugar. I don't think technique at home is as important. Around the world, there are different ways of thinking about what cooking is. And in most places, it's not about technique, really. It's about flavors and combinations of flavors, which for me was a big, you know, awakening. And at that, I, I rest my case, Your Honor. That is fantastic. I think I will give in on my desire to purchase a Dione Lucas knife and maybe find something mm. a little bit more upscale and go at it again. Oh, absolutely. And don't be hard on yourself. Just keep cooking. Yeah, I agree. Well, Karen, thank you very much. Karen, thank you. Thank you for your time and expertise. Sure. Take care. Take care. Bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, it's my conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss. That and more after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with journalist Michael Moss about his latest book, Hooked. Michael, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. I thought we'd start with the problem, which is, I guess, 
obesity, the number of fast food restaurants growing quickly. Maybe you just want to set the stage for what the problem is here. Yeah, I guess we can use obesity, although it's kind of a crude measure. I mean, I think the bigger problem is our kind of having lost control of our eating habits to these, well, to be frank, this cartel of this trillion dollar, you know, industry called the processed food industry. And you can you can kind of measure that loss of control on a spectrum. And at one end are people who who just have, you know, severe eating disorders like binge eating. In the middle might be people who have that nagging 3 p.m. craving for cookies that they can't resist. And then kind of the rest of us down at the other end, it's just kind of this feeling of having lost the beauty and ritual of like home-cooked meals with family and friends, having fallen so hard for these companies who are telling us what we should value in food rather than letting us establish for ourselves what we value in food. So when you did the book, are you taking it from the point of view of how companies are trying to get us, quote-unquote, addicted to their products? Or are you taking it from the point of view as why are we falling for it? Or both? Um, it's a, well, it, it's a little bit both. So one of the things that makes these products so powerful is that they're using our own biology, our own sort of basic instincts against us in, a, in the way that kind of makes us unwitting conspirators. So half the book is about our evolutionary biology that set us up for this mismatch between our genetics and the modern food environment. And then the other half is about how the companies not only did that, but also exploit our attempts to you know, regain control of our eating habits. So I think we need to talk about addiction and, and define it because that's, I guess, at the center of this discussion. You quoted this famous quote from a tobacco company executive who defined it as a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. Do you agree with that? Is, is that your definition? Yeah. I mean, if we had had this conversation five years ago and you suggested to me that Oreo cookies were addictive as heroin, I would have like scoffed and thought that's like nutso. But it was really helpful for me to look at the tobacco industry because for decades they vehemently denied that smoking was addictive. And then suddenly in the year 2000, Philip Morris just completely did an about face and said, oh, you're right. Sorry. Smoking is addictive. And at that time, Philip Morris was also the single largest producer of processed food through its acquisition of the old company General Foods and then Kraft and then Nabisco, which makes Oreo cookies. And it, reporting out Hooked, I got to meet the former chief counsel, top lawyer for Philip Morris, Steve Parrish, and he's explaining to me how he was one of those people who could smoke one cigarette a day, put the pack away, and never have any any compulsion to pull it out until the next day. But he said to me, you know, Michael, I couldn't touch one of our bags of Oreo cookies for fear of losing control and eating half the bag. And so that also sort of had me reflecting on that definition of addiction as this repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit because addiction, these products don't affect everybody in the same way. One of the most interesting things in your book uh say that a researcher discovered that the faster something reaches the brain, the greater the brain's response. So the phenomenal success of processed food is owed in large part to the speed that marks its every aspect. Do you want to talk about that? Because I found that fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, so it was discovered in the 90s. Nora Volkow, who's now at the National Institute on, on Drug Abuse, um, was one of the first people to realize that the faster a drug hits the brain, the more apt it is to seduce us and cause us to act compulsively. So smoking a cigarette takes about 10 seconds to kind of fully engage the brain. Alcohol or drugs are somewhat less than that. But there's nothing faster in the way that it's able to hit the brain and get it excited than things like salt, sugar, fat, and other aspects of processed food. Mm-hmm. And so the speed with which these foods hit has sort of opened my eyes and sort of puts the whole, you know, the term fast food in, in, in a whole new light. I like to call these actually fast groceries because everything about the processed food industry is designed for speed, whether it's the manufacturing process to get the cost down, knowing that cheap food is one of those basic instincts we have that they can exploit, to the packaging, making it so it's opened as fast and easily as possible, (laughs) to the speed with which the the products hit our tongue, and then at the speed with which we can chew them. One of the definitions of kind of ultra-processed foods is that you hardly have to chew these foods. You mentioned that sugar with fat is much more potent than either fat or sugar on their own. Why is that? Yeah, so some recent research showed that when you combine sugar with fats, a couple things happen, right? One, we're less apt to be able to tell how many calories there are in that fat. For example, think about you're drinking from a carton of half and half versus a milkshake, I think you're going to be much more apt to stop drinking that half and half Mm -hmm. um, and continue drinking the milkshake, which has lots of sugar in it. But the other thing that researchers discovered is that when fat and sugar is mixed in these formulations, which aren't found in nature very much, but they're found in a lot of these processed food products, is that they excite a part of the brain called the striatum where habits are formed, where compulsive behavior lives. So it's the in-tandemness of those two additives that makes them more apt to lead you into doing that again and again as as a habit. I think you may have pointed this out. The Cheetos was designed so that when you bite into them, it's like chewing on air. So you don't feel you're actually filling up it was all about texture, yeah. so you eat more of them. I think, that, I think that was something you wrote about. So the term for that is the vanishing caloric density, right? right. which is what the industry calls this, this phenomena, right? When that cheese product melts in your mouth and kind of disappears, the brain is getting a signal that the calories in that have disappeared too. And so right. you might as well just keep eating all of it because, hey, you're not getting any calories. What about other lenses to look at this through? Economic cultural, et cetera, for people who have to stretch the food dollar, is this a worse problem than people who don't have to worry about that? Oh, yeah. And again, if we were, you know, if we were to try to solve obesity, I mean, sometimes I've dreamed of becoming king for the day and taking one zip code and doing 10 things in that zip code to kind of change the food environment. And the first thing you would do is plant that garden in the elementary school to get kids excited about blueberries or radishes. But then, you know, you have to change the food supply, the agriculture system, because when they bring the berries home to their parents and their parents go in the store and try to buy them, that basket of blueberries 
is going to cost as much as a two pound, three cheese, four meat frozen pizza that's going to feed the whole family. And so there's this imbalance in the grocery store where even if you're meaning well by your own health or your family's health, it's going to cost you or it, it can cost you much more to eat healthy. And so you'd be looking at subsidies and research and development monies and you'd realize that most of that goes into soybeans and field corn kind of basic ingredients in processed food and so little goes into making things like broccoli sweeter and yummier and and more accessible and fresher in parts of the parts of the country do you see anything in the last few years and how the fast food industry or the packaged food industry is using laboratories marketing their products have they changed anything lately or is it the same old song one of the things I find troubling is that they've begun responding to our concern about their products and even sort of the addictiveness of their products by promoting and changing the formulas in ways that they hope will appease us. And so one of the things they've glommed onto is protein. But the food companies have been adding extra grams of protein to things like sugary cereal, which makes like no sense. So that's one way that I actually sort of argue that the food companies are not only kind of exploiting these basic instincts of ours that draw us to eat, but exploiting our efforts now to try to regain control of our eating habits in this this crazy modern food environment we're in. Obviously, at the center of this discussion's free will, uh, like the case against McDonald's that you write about in your book, where Jocelyn Bradley sued McDonald's. But the judge concluded, I think, that she could appreciate the risk and therefore there was an issue of free will. Um, So how do you come out with this? In other words, okay, the food companies want to sell as much food as they can at the biggest profit. We understand, I think, that processed foods are not good for us. But yet we go ahead and buy it for all the reasons you've talked about. Uh, Where do you come out on that discussion? I think I sort of come out thinking that if your goal is to sort of hold the industry accountable in court, you're probably going to have to come up with a different strategy. And and we have to remember, going back to tobacco, the thing that caused tobacco problems, they were winning case after case after case from smokers who were getting sick, where juries said, look, there's personal responsibility here. You didn't have to smoke. They started losing when it became established that smoking was addictive, that free will gets ruined, destroyed by the addictive substance, right? But ultimately, the way that attorneys general went after big tobacco was not that smoking was bad or harmful to you, but simply to recover the healthcare costs of treating people who were sickened by smoking. Um, and there's some notion that maybe one could go after big food in the same way, which is not to hold it accountable for making food that's bad for us, but simply hold it accountable for the healthcare costs of obesity. Because now we know from some recent sort of clinical trials that eating processed food will cause you to gain weight. But isn't that the same as saying you could go after Seagram's for producing whiskey, which costs, I don't know, $100 $100 billion a year or more in, in, in lost paychecks and destruction of families and healthcare costs. Why is Seagram's, uh, an alcohol manufacturer, distributor, different than Kraft? Yeah, no, and again, and it's, it's, so I would not maybe be in the position of arguing that, except that 
we have to eat. Everybody has to eat and everybody has to walk in the grocery store and make these decisions. And the playing field is so unlevel. I'm actually arguing that these food products in many ways are more problematic than cigarettes, alcohol, and drugs, partly because of the food environment. Two thirds of the products in the grocery store now have some added sugar to them, which is gonna make just simply grocery shopping a very difficult thing. I mean, personally, I think the first place I would start is looking for ways to help people change their own eating habits and help how they value foods rather than sort of try to coerce the industry into interchanging. So I'm, you know, I'm not about avoiding all junk food. I've been known to kind of steer a family vacation to one of my favorite potato chip factories in the Shenandoah Valley, just so we could like pig out on the free samples. It's, it's more about sort of finding ways to control it rather than, than let it control us. Michael, uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm not sure if I, I feel better or worse um, from this conversation. <laughs> I think worse, oh, no. but uh, I appreciate it anyway. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really great talking to you. And, and thank you so much for your work. That was Michael Moss. His latest book is Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addiction. This is Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, glazed sour cream and brown sugar bundt cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, as you know, I love to bake. Yes. I'm a decent baker. But Cheryl Day from Savannah is a fabulous baker. She wrote the uh, Back in the Day Bakery Cookbook. You know, it's, it's very American, but it's to the 10th degree. I mean, everything is just absolutely amazing, or chocolate cake and other things. And she makes a brown sugar bundt cake. And I thought that, well, you know, what's new about bundt cakes? But this one is actually in a class by itself. So how does she make it? So what I love about this cake is the inspiration for this cake is her grandmother. Her grandmother used to keep a jar of caramels wrapped in wax paper on the table. And that was the inspiration for the flavors in this cake. It's just a basic bundt cake made in the way that you would make a bundt cake, the basic creaming method. But she uses brown sugar and she uses sour cream, so it's really moist. But one little thing she does, and this is what she does in a lot of her recipes, is give a little bit of a modern twist to it. She adds cardamom. Her husband is Norwegian, so that's where this comes from. And it just adds a little bit of something different to the cake itself. This is a glazed bundt cake, right? Yeah, so a really simple glaze with brown sugar, butter, heavy cream. You boil it on the stovetop uh, until you can run a spatula through and make a trail. And then let it sit and cool until it gets thick. Once you start putting it on the cake, if you find it's a little too thin, just let it sit a little bit longer. If it's a little thick, warm it up, but very gently. And then spoon it over. Adds a really nice kind of frosting that's not frosting on the cake. So if you think you're either too old or too sophisticated for bun cakes, I think this glazed sour cream and brown sugar bun cake is absolutely amazing. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can get this recipe for glazed sour cream and brown sugar bun cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, J. Kenji Lopez-El teaches us new ways to cook with alcohol. We'll be right back.
This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Caitlin in New Orleans, Louisiana. How can we help you today? My uh, boyfriend's lovely mother and father have been getting us a cured ham from Tennessee. I guess it's kind of the same curing process that they do for prosciutto. I have discovered that it is quite difficult to get really usable meat in prosciutto for sliced form. So unless I have one of those really nice, expensive slicers, like at the deli, it's really hard versus kind of just cooking down where it's still yummy and porky and delicious. But I like the look of the cured and the marbling and all that good stuff. Are these bone-in country hams that you've now boned out or what? You've already taken the bone out? Yes, I have. So I use that for my Sundays when I make my red beans and rice for Mondays. I guess I'm really just asking this is a question. Is beside cooking it down and beside having one of those really, I think they're like $10,000, those slices, what's a great kind of viable way to get the meat off the bone without it just looking like a murder victim, really? It's not pretty. Well, <laughs> it's not too expensive. You can buy a slicing knife. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, this is the kind of thing like a Spanish ham, for example, Serrano ham. And they have granton edges, some of them, which means that there are sort of depressions in the blade, which makes it easier to slice through. The problem with country hams, as you well know, is unlike sort of a boiled ham, the texture is tougher, right? It's drier, and it makes slicing harder. Really hard. (laughs) Much harder than the Spanish hams because those are not as dry. They have a very different texture. Oh, I didn't know that was a difference. Okay, that makes sense. All right. I would buy a slicing knife. And I think that would be worth the investment. You can also buy home slicers like the one they use in butcher shops. And I think some of them are actually even under 100 bucks. Really? Yeah. I don't know how good they are, though. I've never tried that. Yeah. I'd be suspicious. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I want to show out the big bucks, but I just don't have that kind of cash. But okay, well, good to know that if I get myself a proper knife, that will really help. They're called slicers. They tend to be like 10 inches long. And look mm-hmm. for Granton, G-R-A-N-T-O-N, Edge, which makes slicing easier. Sarah, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I agree cool. 100%. They're often called Spanish flexible slicing knives. And I agree about the okay. Granton part of it because it sort of releases the meat after you right. slice it. You know, I just thought of something I haven't thought about in years, which is an electric knife. What do we think about an electric Whoa. knife, so Chris? Cool. I like yeah. them. I don't even know if they still make them. No, they make them, and uh, what they're great for, they're also great for things like pecan pie, oh. which is impossible Ooh. to slice. So oh. It really is. I pull it out once in a while for pecan pie. So yeah. what do you think about it, Chris, for this purpose? Yeah, yeah. I think that's brilliant. 
I think that's going to be my first go-to. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yay. Sometimes really I have is. good ideas. <laughs> Sometimes a great notion. Yes. Yes. Thank you so much, you guys. I'm looking forward Thank to you. finding my electric meat cutter. This is going to be exciting. <laughs> Go okay, for it. Have a good one. Thank you so much. Okay, Bye, Caitlin. Caitlin. Right, thank you. Sarah, that was a good one. I think I used to own one, but not in years. There's something so cool in retro about a vibrating arm when you're holding yes. the thing and the noise, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. All right. Moving on. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're looking for help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or simply email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name's Colin. I'm in Miami, Florida. How can we help you? I had a question about tools with spinning blades, uh, specifically my blender and my food processor. And the reason I ask is because I recently upgraded my blender to a Vitamix, which is incredible, but the bottom doesn't come out of it. So it's a little harder to get out the last little drop, unlike my food processor, where I can get out every little bit because I can take it apart and scrape it really well with a spatula. So that got me to wondering, how do you decide when you're cooking or preparing a recipe which tool to use since they are similar? I think the blender gets underused, and it's particularly good with liquids or when you want to make an emulsion, right? Something very smooth or very emulsified. Also, you know, soups, for example, if you make a soup and you want to puree it before you serve it, it does tend to leak out of a food processor. You can't really fill it more than halfway full, is my experience. I would say if you're chopping nuts, onions, dry items versus liquids, liquids go in a blender. Food processor is good for the other stuff. Also, a very small amount of ingredients, especially if you have a lard, like 11-cup food processor, they tend to end up under the blades, you know? And I find sometimes a blender is better for smaller quantities. You want liquids and emulsions are really great in the blender. Sarah? Yeah, I basically agree. I mean, I have a Vitamix, too. You will never get that kind of creamy texture in a food processor that you do in a blender, particularly a Vitamix. For people who don't know, it's the Cadillac. It ain't cheap. But what I wanted to say was I agree with you that that blender in particular is very hard to get everything out because others that aren't so high-end, you can unscrew the bottom and get the stuff out from the bottom. You can't do that with a Vitamix. So what I've taken to doing is when I'm done, as long as whatever I've pureed could take a little more liquid, I put water in it, a little bit of water to clean it out. But I would never attempt to make a creamy soup using a food processor. It's just not worth it. You really need that blender to get that creamy texture. You can also throw them in the uh, dishwasher. The Vitamix, you can. Well, well, let me put it this way. We do. We use it all. We use it like three times a week. My wife is still into kale smoothies, even though I think their expiration date is over. But uh, yeah, it goes in the dishwasher. It seems to still work. So, well, good. And my concern wasn't more about um, cleaning it rather than wasting the stuff that's in there. But that's where, if you use a little bit of water, you'll get more out. Get the and, last drops. Yeah. Great tip. Thanks. All right. Colin, thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yes. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Alita in Atlanta. 
If you're making a pot of something, there's no need to have a whole jar of tasting spoons like you see on TV. You really only need two, the one you're stirring with and the one you're tasting with if you just take the contents of the stirring spoon and transfer it into the tasting spoon. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street Radio, simply go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's food science writer, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Kenji, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Pretty good. What have you been working on since the last time we spoke? Well, I recently um, came up with this uh, recipe for my New York Times column for Viennese-style schnitzel, which is the schnitzel that has a very sort of puffy crust that looks sort of like Sharpay skin, where, right. it, where it gets these like sort of puffy, big space between the cutlet and the breading. And my goal was to make that crust puff up as much as possible. And one of the tricks I figured out was if you brush the cutlets with a little bit of vodka before Ooh. you apply the breading, that vodka actually, you know, it's more volatile than water. So it puffs up more violently than water does. And so it actually sort of inflates it like a balloon. So it gives you this really extra puffy crust, you know, and so when I did that, it actually made me think of all the other times that I've used vodka okay. in places where you... Yes. Yeah, you're familiar with, I think, the first one, which was that pie crust that we did where um, you replace some of the water with vodka. And the idea there is that gluten doesn't really form in vodka, but vodka can still hydrate the dough. So it makes a dough that's very easy to roll out, but still remains nice and crispy and doesn't get tough the way a pie dough can if you add too much water. I also use vodka frequently... In fact, virtually every time I'm making any kind of batter for frying, you know, so whether it's beer battered fish or whether it's tempura, something like that, I'll add a little bit of vodka to it. Again, for similar reasons, actually, this is sort of a combination reason for first, because it limits gluten formation so that your batter doesn't get tough or bready, but also because it's more volatile. So when you're deep frying foods that are in a batter, you want that batter to puff out and the gases in it to expand as rapidly as possible. So adding like a little shot of vodka in there can actually force that to happen. Can I stop you for a second? You know, sure. one question I never asked you, because your vodka pie crust is amazing. There's so little water that goes like a few tablespoons right into a typical mm -hmm. pie crust, like a single pie crust might be three tablespoons. Mm -hmm. If half of vodka is alcohol mm -hmm. and half is water, you're only taking maybe a tablespoon of water out of the recipe is that enough to really change gluten formation? That's a question I've always had. In the tests we did, you know, the blind tests we did back then, it did, you know, it was a noticeable difference. The idea is that you end up adding about the same amount of water, but you're able to add a little bit extra liquid. Right. So it's not it's not so much you're going to make a, a crust that's significantly better than if you do it with just water and you just use a little bit less liquid. It's really more about making the crust right. easier to okay. handle. Okay. So rather than using, you know, three tablespoons of water, you're using three tablespoons right. of water plus a tablespoon of ethanol. So you're increasing the hydration of the dough by an extra 33%. So that right. actually makes it much easier okay. to roll out without cracking. So is that how you write the recipe? Three tablespoons water, one tablespoon ethanol? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that sounds really If appealing. you have access to pure ethanol, yeah. <laughs> so let's go back to the cullen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've spent some time in Vienna, had it there and in Salzburg. And it, right, it does have that Sharpay crust. What exactly is the vodka doing in this recipe to give you that crust? 
The idea came because, you know, I watched a bunch of Austrian chefs. I talked to some Austrian chefs and a bunch of like sort of, you know, recipe writers in Austria who now have YouTube channels and things like that. And one of the common techniques is to take like a spray bottle, like a mister, um, spray the cutlet with water before you put it in flour. Hmm. So, you know, it's this typical breading. So flour, right. egg, and then very, very fine breadcrumbs. But if you spray it with water before you do that flour layer, what it does is it essentially creates like a little moisture layer in there that when you then fry it, that moisture evaporates. You know, so the eggs and the breadcrumbs set on the outside sort of loosely, and then the water inside puffs out. It's very similar to how dough gets an oven spring. You know, pizza dough, for example, right. when you bake it, it puffs up. It's because the water in there is expanding and converting into steam. So it does the same thing, but alcohol expands faster and more than water does. It has a lower evaporation point. Is that why? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so what about now? I, I remember working on this recipe too, and I would jiggle the pan to get sort of waves of hot oil over the surface. Is that how you get that interesting texture on the outside? Well, that, that certainly helps. You know, the reason you want to keep the pan moving, there's a couple of things. Like, first of all, there's, you know, there's the mechanical action. The oil splashing over and over, it will help sort of loosen that crust and make sure that it doesn't stick to the meat. It also makes sure that it constantly stays hot, you know, because when you fry something or you bake something, there's a little layer of air or oil or water or whatever it is that's at a slightly different temperature than the rest of the oil. So when you're frying something, the oil right outside the food being fried is being actively cooled by that food. You know, you're introducing convection and constantly replenishing that cold oil with hotter oil. You know, it's similar to how like, if you're in like, say a cold pool, if you sit on the side of the pool and hang onto the edge, you'll get used to the water and it'll feel kind of bearable. And then you start to move and suddenly you're reintroduced to colder water again and it'll start feeling cold again. The answer here is to brush are you using veal? You're using chicken? What are you using? It, well, it works with anything. You know, the recipe I published was actually with pork. Okay. I tested this with veal, chicken, turkey, and pork. So you just have a pastry brush or you dip it in a pie plate or what? Yeah, I do I do a pastry brush. You know, I thought it was a little bit too much to ask people to get a mister and put liquor in it. Yeah, just a pastry brush. And you just give it a little brush and then you dip it in the flour, eggs, and then um, very, very fine breadcrumbs. That was the other trick to the schnitzel is that you grind your breadcrumbs and then sift them through a fine mesh strainer. Because the panko is a much coarser than a Wiener schnitzel, right? Really, any type of breadcrumbs work. Even store-bought, like Progresso, work fine, as long as you grind them and then sift them so that you have them really, really fine. I assume when you eat your Kenji schnitzel, <laughs> you can't actually taste the vodka, right? No, no, you can't. You know, similar with the pie dough or, you know, a fried fish crust, um, the alcohol all burns off, so you don't really taste it. It's, you know, something like vodka sauce, there's actually alcohol remaining, and that's sort of essential to the flavor. But with this, it all evaporates away. You do taste it, actually, though. I tried doing this with bourbon and with tequila. Those do actually leave a little bit of an aftertaste. Mm. You know, not an alcohol aftertaste, but from the liquor itself. But, you know, vodka is essentially flavorless, so you don't really get anything from that. That's why I don't drink vodka. <laughs> Kenji, thank you. Now I have another way to use the vodka that I don't drink. <laughs> All right, Chris, see you later. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, and also author of The Food Lab. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find our recipes, you can take a free online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening. 
Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producers, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.